Welcome to SideQuests, your high-octane distraction from all those other podcasts. We're a pen and paper RPG audio show featuring chatter about rules and how to master them, epic world building, player investment, and interviews with the people who make the games you love. Listen in as we trade tabletop war stories, make judgment calls on odd situations, and do absolutely everything we can to give you more RPG resources than you could dream of, all from a simple side quest. My name is Craig, and I have been playing with ghouls. Ghouls. I'm Rob, and uh, last week I forgot to mention that uh, I did a library thing. I'm oh, Eli, Eli. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what, what was this library thing? Okay, uh, so... <laughs> Just we spent five minutes talking about this beforehand. Just here we go. It's, it's... <laughs> it is. It's it's funny. It's all right. Um, so yeah, the library thing I for, I forgot to mention. It totally slipped my mind to bring it up. But I had been looking forward to this, and I was excited about it um, all summer because I was at the local library before I moved, and they had approached me about running games for their youth program for the fall. So it's both a teaching opportunity to teach kids who are new to uh, Dungeons and Dragons and specifically as well as kind of TTRPGs in whole. So the first session we had, we had one kid, one 10 year old kid. He was super enthralled, super excited. He had been trying to learn D&D by kind of playing with his friends, figuring out the rules, etc. Uh, as a group. And it's really funny because when we were talking initially, the first question he asked me is, how do you kind of keep everybody focused at the table? And I had to chuckle a little bit because I said, honestly, that's a problem you're going to have for the rest of your life. In if, this the kid, if the kid figures it out, can you share it with us? That's <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, but he signed up for every single Saturday. I'm doing it bi-weekly for him. Every single Saturday that uh, we have available scheduled out through November. So... Every two weeks until November, I'm running a game for just this one kid. And as of right now, we have two more possibly joining in. And all it takes is one. One kid in a group of friends, and you start to get the rest of them. That's how we all kind of get the start. So really excited. I want to give more updates as it goes on. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to hear how that goes. Um, kids definitely approach problem solving with some surprising angles. So... Uh, yeah. Tales from the Table on that one should be pretty interesting. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, there's uh, there's some pieces of advice that I gave him. And Eli, we're going to let you kind of lead us into the topic for today's episode. Um, and some of the things I've given him really play into this. So why don't you take the floor from here? Oh, t uh, today we're going to talk about monsters and homebrewing or changing monsters to suit your needs uh, i guess that's that's how how from the book do you two play your monsters like when you want an orc do you just grab you know grab a grab an orc and run it what do you guys do when uh when i want an orc yeah i'll just grab an orc if i need something specific a lot of times i will grab whatever i need reskin it as what i need um like, if I need something with multiple claw attacks, I'll pull something of appropriate level, um, reskin it to whatever avatar it needs, use the stat block. 
How do you tend to tell the difference between whether something you can... So let's say you're in a scenario and you know that you need a monster of some kind. What's mm -hmm. the deciding factor for you when you're like, well, I could use a minotaur or you're like, no, I need something more specific. How do you, how do you make that call? Uh, so primarily because I'm either playing something specifically Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons, um, their stat blocks and their attack system is pretty, I don't want to say universal or standardized, but easy to remember. So when you think about things such as what attack, special attacks or special abilities do what, um, that's really my base. I think, what can this particular monster do? And instead of building it on the fly, I will just pull whatever else can do that. And rarely do I have to take two monsters and kind of divvy them up gestalt style. Um, it, yeah. Special attacks or abilities are kind of my deciding factor. Same question for you, Eli. What do you think? What's your What's your process for figuring out if you know that you need a monster? How do you select what you need or make what you need? I, I feel like reskinning monsters is a great way to bring in monsters, like monster profiles or stats you might not otherwise use. Because I, I think you can't choose, like, whenever you need to default to a humanoid creature, you can't always choose the same stat block, or mm -hmm. I think one of you two mentioned everything's a bear ah, as, yes. as a way to reskin, and I I feel like you're, you're robbing your players of, like, a unique experience with having different monsters if, you know, every every random or every kind of obscure monster has very similar abilities i i have to defend everything as a bear's honor now just so in our prior conversations um the topic came up of when in doubt just use a bear which is mm -hmm. it's not make every monster a bear but the idea is if you're in a corner you need something bear stats generally work they generally have enough hit points that they're not going to evaporate the instant that any one of your any one of the party members, you know, directs their ire toward it. They have a pretty versatile attack setup, usually some kind of variation on claw-claw bite. The damage is not negligible, but it's enough that they're going to kind of pay attention. And they're they're pretty durable. You could say, okay, yeah, that's um, that's a really tough guy who's, you know, got... He's going to boot you, you know, heavily, so there's the bite, and then he's going to swing, you know, uh, two axes at you, or something to that effect. More specific stuff is often called for, but that's that's the philosophy. It's like, are you in, are you stuck? Do you need something immediately? Start with a bear, backfill it later on. Because um, I agree, if everything's literally the same behind the screen, then you are kind of depriving your players of of the opportunity to experience untold vistas of horrible things. Yeah, that feels like an attack, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I get what you guys are saying. I don't always use the same. I just look for things that are similar enough. Um, and it's funny, I, I as think, you're talking... I Go think D&D &D and Pathfinder do it really pretty well by having the standardized thing, because it's really easy to also make monsters. Yeah. Because like in that way, I mean, everything's pretty codified. Boom, boom, boom. And you can build, um, you can build your own stat block. I want to poke yeah. some holes in that. Um, how quick is it? There might be an answer, but if you had to build something completely on the fly, how quick or how quick could you do that using uh, the systems that you're talking about? And how married are you to being um, completely perfect in that assembly? Oh, yeah, so, I do not think it's a quick assembly for D&D. I, &D. I think that 
I'm sorry, I think that depends on experience. Um, I mean, not just experience, but how well do you know your party? So, for example, if I had to create a monster on the fly, I know just about how many hit points I can get, give it to be uh, kind of everlasting or as, or as tough as it needs to be. I know kind of a generalized um, stat number I can keep consistent for saving throws. Um, I mean, I don't have to write it down. Like you said, I know you said perfect, but to get through a combat, um, if you know your party and experience, you can kind of just throw numbers at your dice and make it up as you go. Um, the, pro the problem is, is that if you forget something, you know, you just say tactics have changed a little bit or um, keeping it consistent will allow you to at least pull it off like you know what you're doing. And I think the illusion is really that, is pulling it off like you know what you're doing. I think that the nature of this conversation is going to reveal a whole lot that goes on behind the curtain here. So um, players oh, yeah. listening and prepare to be terribly disillusioned um, to see the sausage made here. Uh, mm -hmm. Eli, what do you what do you think about it? I think it does matter up to about like experience is big, but I, I mean a lot of that might tie into it. But the idea of how much prep time you have, um, and especially for monsters, if you run on a virtual tabletop, mm -hmm. it's it's really nice to have like because I've I've put enough prep time on my virtual tabletops in that I can just. I have every monster that I've like every monster I've ran across. I've been like, Oh, this is a cool monster. I'm going to add it to like, I've got one rule 20 game that just has every monster I've ever um, encountered kind of like with stats and then, you know, tokenized and uh, in a way that it can be usable at any, like I can just drag and drop. Um, so that's kind of spoiled me a little bit. Now, uh, about your virtual tabletop. Cause this instantly um, comes to mind. Does that allow you to create monsters on the fly? So I've actually I've struggled with this um, when I'm running a game on on a virtual tabletop. It um, I use Foundry. I'm Foundry VTT. I'm a big fan of it. I use Roll Twenty. I end up liking Foundry a little bit more. Um, and uh, what I have found is that even when you set up your virtual tabletop and you say, hey, I want to use um, this particular system, and it says, great, here's your pre-set up you know, NPC cards that can handle monster stats. Um, for uh, perfectly valid issues of copyright, they can't stick in the entire monster book from, from that setup. You might have you know, entities from an SRD in some case, the, the most common basic monsters. But often it's like, hey, do you want this thing that's, that certainly exists in, in the monster book or in, in, in the, the bestiary, but is, um, is a little more nuanced? You're going to have to write it up yourself. And that takes time. Um, what I've ended up doing practically is I run a combination of using the tabletop just to represent the tokens because it's trivial to put together. Here's a token. Here's the art for it. That's it. And I leave all the data blank. The players aren't checking it. I'm running it off of my own books or my own PDFs or my own notes locally. Um, but we often don't engage with the mechanisms in the virtual tabletop to say, all right, now you click this button that makes your attack roll that automatically deducts HP from here. Because it's weird, despite it being, it's, despite it's supposed to be, wow, um, despite the intent being that the players can do all the mechanics of the game in the tabletop, it's more effort to set that up every single time you want to use it. Um, so I wing it more often than not. The art ends up being the most important part there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, as 
as somebody who plays primarily in person, I've got limited experience online. And I remember when Roll20 was just getting started, the whole thing was free. Um, we ended up having to do things like the tokens were essentially just our positions on the map. We ended up doing Skype calls in order to communicate because their audio system was horrible. It's still so, not great. <laughs> <laughs> so even with Founder, I mean, I know that the market has really changed and Eli, all your prep work going into getting that all set up, um, that being your thing, my thing in person, Craig, you're able to wing it. Um, that, that allows three distinct different styles. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we have is not um, not really a consensus to come to at this point. It's just how are we going to wing it? Craig, with yours, it's easy enough because you're still on paper to some degree um, with art. Uh, and so I'm still curious, Eli, if you have to wing it, do you kind of prep the wing first? Well, I I have a, I have a heavy coding background. And okay. so working with, and the reason why I use Roll20 is that I've put so much time in writing scripts and APIs and really doing everything I can to personalize the the character sheets to mm-hmm. be exactly what I need. So I really enjoy it as a tool. Um, and since I do try to write a lot of like you know, random scripts or treasure generators and stuff like that, I can build that all in. Um, and so... When I'm doing my prep in general, I can have Roll20 open, and then I start to do stuff in Roll20 as I'm doing stuff locally, and then uh, it kind of all rolls together. So I can see that being a real game changer, but but Eli, are you at the point where you have like a script that will parse OCR text and eat that and turn it into a JSON and put it into Roll20 directly, or are we not quite that automated yet? Nothing nothing quite that automated, no. There's your, there's uh, your more, winter more project. Like insta- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they kind of have that with when you create a compendium for like Roll20 because they basically have an, a giant Excel sheet and you can just fill in data. So as long as you can fill out an Excel sheet, um, then that can be ported in. Um, so, but that involves working on a compendium, which is like more more involved with actually the legal having a license and working with a trademark. So, and. It's necessary to respect trademarks and, and be respectful of copyright and all that. But on the other hand, there's also a certain amount of... Um... All right. I'm not advocating anybody to break the law or disrespect copyright here. But there's just before I even say another single word here. But as people who are running the game, there is a certain practicality to like, all right, what is the most expedient way that I can get the material that's on the book and in my head into the heads of my players? And it's hard to to struggle with your tools that are supposed to make your life easier, but they're like, yeah, it's easy if you spend four hours ahead of time doing data entry. And it's like, is that a solution? Or is that just a different kind of make work? Um, bridging that gap is the hard part. And when you try to, sometimes the most expedient solutions for bridging that gap end up bumping up against corporate realities, mm. which I can be euphemistic. Yeah, yeah. I I fall prey of putting enough time, like putting so much time in Roll Twenty to like you know build everything out that I, sometimes it can feel like a little bit like of a pressure. Like for a while yeah. when I was really into it, like there was a pressure to make sure that everything, like since we had the ability to make everything look really nice, there was a pressure to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we've actually enjoyed it more once we started letting go of some of that and. You know, you, 
it is a virtual tabletop. You just got to treat it like that. You know, if you need a, if you need a scratch paper, you're able to draw on it, mark it all up, use it like you'd use a, like a, a Chessex mat at home. I um I, I found something very very similar to that. I um for the past several sessions I was trying to use and convert maps directly from from a PDF that I had of some adventures that I was running. But I was struggling and struggling and struggling trying to get this to to be the right size and figure out DPI. Well, I guess it's not DPI, but try to convert resolutions and get it right. And then I realized, oh man, I can't use this map. It's got all the secret doors on the thing visible for the players and it was such a relief to remember that I can just draw a couple of boxes and it's okay to be imperfect. Perfection, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And as long as you end up with something that's you can use at the table in the moment to have fun, that's that. the only way you've screwed up is if you're not having fun. I agree with that. And it's funny, I remember one time I got into a Facebook argument. Um, oh, oh that, no. That was my proudest moment. <laughs> what a surprise. But, oh no. Um, so it's funny because as a gaming company, I manufacture and 3D print things like minis and dungeon terrain, dungeon tiles and whatnot. But I don't think that necessarily adds anything to the game. I mean, if you want to have it, by all means. If you want to go theater of the mind, by all means. Uh, Craig, as you said, having fun is the primary objective with this. And the individual I was um, heatedly discussing this with uh, felt that anytime you add something to the table, it's inherently better just because there's something more there. And my position is that regardless of what's there, nothing to the most expensive uh, accoutrement that you can put on the table, it does not inherently make the game better if the players aren't having fun or if the story sucks or if your ability to run it is lacking. And that is such a huge issue. And a virtual tabletop eliminating that allows the way to, to clear that and then to take it a step farther and do things on the fly, I think, kind of brings back that initial feel of why we get into it. I mean, it's easy, fun, quick, whip something up and get down with it. Um, so that's just quick history. Yeah, it's the fun is primarily the objective every time we try to run. And and I do think that mechanics still matter. We We play these games that have these rules one of the fastest ways I've ever tried to explain um, role-playing games, D&D, to, uh, you know, normies in my family, just people who have no idea what the hell's going on otherwise, um, yeah. is, okay, we all, we're getting together, we're going to play make-believe. But there are some rules to make sure that everyone is making believe the same thing at the same time. And that, that usually tracks. Um, you can just sit around the fire and tell stories. We've got a great tradition of that as humans and this is sort of mm -hmm. an extension of that in my belief but i think that the rules are important not so much because they are valuable in and of themselves but because they serve as this mechanism to unite everyone's imagination in the moment um does it matter if a dagger does a d4 or a d6 damage in terms of how much fun you had no. absolutely not absolutely not but does it matter if the party wizard has one more slot left for a fifth level spell well maybe if it's teleport and everybody's about to be drowned in lava mm -hmm. so with a certain amount of freeform you sort of lose that eli is making wise finger gestures what, what do you got man yeah I, I think the biggest thing is just to be consistent um yes and that's what that's what the rules give you is some consistency mm -hmm. and that's the hardest part about being a game master or a 
dungeon master is just trying to be consistent in all your rulings because um, mm -hmm. with the the more avenues of consistent like the more platforms of knowledge that the players have the more willing they are to explore the unknown uh, be that cool rules or cool things in game or even just their role playing you're describing consistency yeah. as a kind of context for them to to build understanding yeah yeah Okay. Like if you like, that's why I think there are so many more fantasy games out there for RPGs than sci-fi games, because when you play a science fiction game, there's there's always like you don't have all have the same basis, you know, not a, not as you're not into as much science, or you know, you, you don't agree with the world's round, you know, there's like all these other things, but in a fantasy game. <laughs> Everyone knows the fantasy setting, so it's just a good foundation. Because it has to be declared beforehand, uh, because there's not necessarily an obvious default. I mean, there is, like, the default fantasy setting, which is kind of Tolkien pastiche mm -hmm. with the serial numbers vigorously mm -hmm. rubbed off. Oh, um, yeah. But, but I, I think you're onto something there. I, I think that's really solid. Um, the context is what makes people comfortable enough to figure out where their feet are to begin with and think about what directions they can expand out from there. Um, and if you get way too far away from the the consensus of what's going on, uh, players players get real grumpy, and I think that's very justified. They get paralyzed. They're like, I, I don't know what to do because I don't know what's possible or what's what's given. And that's something that I think a lot of people end up dealing with when they first get their feet wet with a lot of tabletop games is that the options are only limited by what they can imagine in most cases. And when you feel that way, I mean, it's, it's like living life. I mean, you're going to wake up and do something. But when you have to make a conscious decision about what your character is going to do, it, you have no idea because all of a sudden every possibility seems improbable or overly probable or um, just ridiculous at sometimes. And newer players are like, I don't know what I should or should not mention. Like, do I mention that I've gone to the bathroom? Does it important? Uh, does it matter? You know, did I, what order did I get dressed in? Is that something I need to tell my DM? Like, they don't know. <laughs> so I think you touch on like a, an interesting subject that's like when people get too, too comfortable with the rules, like they're too much of that, then mm -hmm. instead of thinking on the fly and doing something like, you know, doing something impulsive, instead they start thinking via the rules. Mm -hmm. So, I, I really think it's important to either have characters die some every so often so that you get a new class into the game so that it can mm -hmm. kind of spice things up or even, I mean, it kind of sucks to lose players, but when you have like a circulation, like a, a small circulation of people that are new to the game or new players mm -hmm. into the group, you can, it kind of shakes up what everyone, like everyone's expectations of what you can do and then... Every, you know, it's kind of like the weightlifting method, like thought of that you plateau if you only do the same thing, and then you sure. have to mix it up to keep getting stronger. Work those RPG muscles. <laughs> that uh, that that brings a question to mind immediately. How do you feel about something like character trees? I mean, we get to a feasible reason to kind of pause, and your player can bring in a different character to go out on an adventure while his character A kind of takes a break for a minute. 
Sorry, I'm not sure I'm familiar with the term you're using. Character trees? What do you what's that what's that concept? Uh so your players can have two to three characters. I usually stop at three, um, that are played one at a time. So if you get to a village and there's downtime or something, your backup character, your B lister, your C lister, etc., um, by some hand waving is already there. You can swap them out and play with that character uh, to give your primary character a break. Or if you're not sure where he wants to go, if you don't know how to develop him at that point, um, gives you an opportunity to play something different for a little while. And then general rules will usually apply at my table, like. Their characters cannot hand off loot to each other. They cannot pass it back and forth between themselves via other party members. Um, they can know each other exist by way of mention, but they can't directly interact by any means, uh, even with a medium party member in between. Um, but that opportunity um, is one player, multiple characters, multi uh, like branches of a tree. So... It sounds like a technique um, that's born of, I think, a much older style of playing. Um, that what you just, just what you've just described sounds like it gets a. It's the sort of thing that's discussed occasionally in OSR circles about uh, the the oldest methods, the sort of stable of characters that that players would bring in, and they'd be like, "Well, today I'm going to bring in my fighter versus you know I just have my priest. He's off doing something else." So, um, have you seen a lot of that play? Um, in the the more modern games that you're running the pathfinder stuff uh, etc when i'm running pathfinder i'll usually allow it when things start to get a little stale um like hey let, let's bring in some other characters you guys aren't sure what, what we're doing uh, with my primary group that i used to play with we would oftentimes have a character tree uh, maybe once or twice a year depending on who was dming at the time i don't often see it but i do see the question about it pop up quite a bit in some of the Facebook or Reddit groups that I'm kind of, I lightly follow now. Um, they come across the, I don't know what I should really do when uh, some of my players aren't having a whole lot of downtime. They kind of want to take a break from their character, but I don't want to kill them. Um, and so I'll usually suggest that, like, hey, start a character tree. You know, let them bring in another character at the same level. They roll with that one for a while and kind of give them a quick rundown of the rules I just described for you guys. And... Um, seen it personally outside of me and a handful of other people uh, not too often any experience on your on your part eli i run a, a similar system it's, I, I run one of the more osr systems where uh you have proteges so you you have a you have a head character and then you have like a, a small stable of characters that are basically your character if you die so like retainers it, or hirelings or something like that yeah, so the game basically, if you don't have a protege and your character dies, you just are a new level one character. Uh, but with proteges, you kind of have the ability to like, like let's say, let's say you have three proteges, then you you have a, a three chances to roll stats for characters, and then as your main character adventures, they can choose to like whenever they return from their adventure, they can choose to give away half of their experience to one of their proteges by kind of teaching them. Um, this is a hackmaster uh, mechanic. This is this is a hackmaster mechanic. Okay. And uh, it it's it's been nice. We like it because the hackmaster also has pretty long healing times. Like you can get like 
pull a hammy or get stabbed, and the wound might last for like if you don't have magical healing, might take like a month to heal. Holy shit! Of like of game time. Um, yeah. Or leveling up, like going from level six to seven, takes seven weeks of training. And with characters not all being the same level, you might finish an adventure and two people will go off and level up, and they'll introduce one of their their protégés, and then the protégés will go off on the adventure uh, with them. So, so, so I have a that, yeah. I have a question of the uh, sort of the practicality of this. So so first off, how large is your group on average for your hackmaster group that you run? How many? So players? we've got six players, but okay. um, because we play online and we have a we have a quorum of four. So if we have four okay. players, we'll play. So typically we have like that four to five player range. So given that. And given the average length of a, a given campaign that you would run or a major arc in that campaign that you would run, how often do you see players engaging with this protege mechanic? Because giving away half your experience seems like kind of a big deal. How often does it actually see use at the table? Well, we've been playing for about four years. And same general crew? Same general group. We've cycled. Okay. Some, we've One person left and we've had two people join. Um, okay. We have, there are two players who do not give any of their experience points to protégés. Um, they only under, like, if we have less than four people, we'll typically play a game, but it'll be just protégés, and we'll just play just like a random side quest, and just role play, have fun, do something random. So mm -hmm. that's the only way they've been kind of giving their protégés some experience. But we also have some other players that will just dump like one player always every single session gives half their experience to another oh actually we have two players to do that they like they roll up characters and then they roll up backstories for them as well so like one character their main character is the brother of their protege and like they're tied together they escape from the elven kingdom together and so that the because he mainly thought his main character was just gonna die instantly and so he was like, well... well of course got, it's lasted I'm... forever. Yeah, of course. If he's had a numerous uh, near-death experiences. <laughs> but... Have you found that the players who are giving away this significant quantity of their experience to their protégés find that they're lagging behind the other players? Or because new characters start at level one, and that's the assumption, that it ends up being sort of a wash? Because... I have, this has been a, a topic of frequent discussion in my groups of, hey, if we die, does our, we don't we do not do a protege thing, we don't do a hireling thing, do we come back at level one? And, you know, I wanted to be a hard ass originally on and be like, yes, new characters start at level one. And I charitably would describe the player's response to that as uh, open revolt, and so we did mm. not do that. Um <laughs> So that's that's why I'm curious because it seems like you've approached this problem as well, and you had a, a different experience, or or maybe they throw bricks at you. But I'm curious what what happened. We we do a thing where if they write a backstory of a thousand words, they get to go to level two. So that's kind of an incentive for my players. If they do die, then they can kind of you know invest themselves into a character and then. Still carry on, it's a little bit less rough, but Hackmaster is also a game where a level difference in your class isn't game-breaking. So okay. you, the, the like, what's the maximum you, level in the game? Uh, 
40. Oh. Nice. Yeah. Um, every, every it's it's very low fan like low fantasy because it's about every three levels of power or every three levels in Hackmaster is about one level in D and D. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I got a question. Yeah. yeah. I got a question about your uh your thousand words. How many players ask if they double that they can get another level? Um, I've I had someone submit like twenty pages. Bro, oh god. Oh. Oh god, I've had a few like that. Well, because, okay, well, what happened? What happened with that? So in your Hackmaster game, you, like when you generate a character, you at one point you also roll to see how many siblings you have. So they rolled a high number and they were like, "All right, like I rolled a high number and my character has a really high charisma so that they can have a lot of proteges. All of my siblings will just be my proteges. So I'm just going to write <laughs> backstories for this entire adventuring family." And, and like traveling circus. The funniest part is that's the player that I've had go through their most amount of characters. Like they just be like, "All right, well, this person just broke their back." All oh right. no! <laughs> it was funny too because two of their characters ended up retiring because they both like rolled the same really bad fumble and then both ended up hurting their back. And so he's like. <laughs> That's just well, genetic I, I, at this point. Yeah, that, that that became the running joke. That's so. funny. I love that 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 story has emerged from this preposterous. That was, so they did. They just wrote like one group backstory, including every member of the adventuring von Trapp family. Like what? <laughs> That's basically what it was. Yeah, uh, there were no. there were some of it. Like I did. It didn't start out at twenty pages, but we played for about a year and a half, and it definitely got that big. So it might have, yeah. might have been bigger. I had to ask my players. I, I, I just warned them. Do not write me more than a single page of backstory. It's it's not that I don't want to read that. It's not that I want to discourage uh, your inspiration. But you're going to feel super salty about this if you step on a landmine 20 minutes into the first session. Mm -hmm. write, write the rest as we play. Um and you gotta you gotta walk that line too. You don't want to discourage them, but you also don't want to get them too married to the characters that they show up with. How about you, Rob? Is it have you ever had anybody show up with a, a novella? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna tell. This is uh, this is one of Potato's biggest things, and he once presented presented me with a 27 page backstory, single spaced. <laughs> and it was ridiculous. I read the whole thing, by the way. Read the whole damn thing. Um, was it good? It was mixed. He, paused, he pauses at great length, inhales he, deeply. It, it's mixed. <laughs> and so I'm not saying Potato was a bad writer by any means. Uh, he had a lot of ideas. His problem was generally cohesion between ideas and a lot of um, over details where they shouldn't, shouldn't really be because they're irrelevant okay. by all means which I find to be the general problem with players who present big backstories. Um, and yeah, Potato would end up writing a novella. There'd be whole conversations that he would include with other people. So one of the things I like about super developed backstories is it allows me to develop my worlds a little bit more whole. Like, hey, they kind of name their location. They got some people. I can utilize that if they ever make it back. They may not make it back, but if they do, I can kind of play on that. Again, 
caveat is the downside. They have an envision for these NPCs, and if I don't match that vision by other means against Salty, I might be letting them down by some means. Um, but it, yeah, if go it ahead. matters. I provide. I try to provide my players not like a template, but like a general gist of how they're. Like I said, backstories, but it's it's more like a character like profile. Mm-hmm. So I ask for like describe what they like, you know, paint me a setting with your character in it. Um, yeah. Describe, because like in Hackmaster, you roll flaws. So tell me how your character got all these flaws. Like, tell me what is their motivation for going out and adventuring mm-hmm. and tell me one fear that your character has. If like, if it's not obvious, because some characters like have phobias or, you know, they pretty glaring things um and then i also i think i ask for a goal as well like overarching big goals because i i try to build an adventure like i try to kind of cycle through and and have an adventure that's at least generally geared towards one player's character at a time um or at least like that takes advantage of a character's goals yeah more if possible it's something that i struggle with actually um trying to you know have the the desires and the goals of the of the player's characters woven into the stuff that I'm running. Um, it, it's easy to get swept up in the moment of, you know, do I have a good adventure that I've either found or that I've written on my own? Um, it, is that inherently a, a high quality thing? Does it have lots of interesting interactable moments? Does it have cool monsters and magic items and spells and just stuff to keep them going? And then suddenly you look up and you're like, oh, uh, I need a reason why they need to care about this. Oh, crap. Uh, so, I mean, it's something I'm trying to work on in my own GMing. Um, have you guys heard of something called knife theory? Uh, I want to say that it's passed through things I've looked at, but I haven't really um, deep dived into it. So Only if you're referencing the idea that we need to be knife to each other. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I have started, so we're playing D- Dungeon Crawl Classics now, and we're using the fleeting luck rules. Um, which is meant to, to, I swear this is not a terrible tangent. We're using the fleeting luck rules where, um, at the beginning of every session, the players have a shared, have a pool of luck points that they can spend to influence rolls. Um, every time anybody rolls a natural 20, they get another point. You can spend one point to influence the, the result of a die face. Um, but if anybody in the group ever rolls a natural one, all of it goes away from everybody simultaneously. So spend it while you have it. But one additional uh, change I made to that is if you make a pun that makes me audibly groan, everyone gets an additional point of fleeting luck. And I don't regret that in the slightest. So please enjoy your point of fleeting luck, Eli. Um, Thanks a lot, Eli. Huzzah! Uh, <laughs> If you Google RPG knife theory, you'll come across a Reddit post in the uh, r slash D&D subreddit, um, which is, uh, you can read it through, but it's, it's a fairly simple idea to take away, which is the idea that when you're working on a character's backstory, this is posted by a guy named Jim Baby. I have no idea who this person is, but they wrote this, so there's some quality for you. The idea being that for the character's backstory, you include a number of things that this person called knives, which are specific details, named characters that you're, that, that character cares about. Um, phobias or traumas, mysteries in their life, an ongoing enemy in their back. And they're called knives because player crafts them, 
and then hands them to the GM, and they are actionable details from that character's history that they can then use and, in Jim Baby's parlance, stab the player with over and over again. Sorry, mm-hmm. stab the character. Don't stab your players. That's There's laws about that. Um, yeah. But the idea carries, right? The more detail, more not just detail, actionable, concrete detail you get from a player character, the more levers you can pull as a GM. You don't want mm-hmm. an, uh, an overwhelming, you know, uh, molasses tidal wave of, of gobbledygook the entire time. Um, because what are you going to do with the name of their, you know, goldfish when they were six? Um, yeah, I but... got that. <laughs> <laughs> Actionable stuff is, is, is preferred, and that doesn't have to take up 20 pages. You can, you can fit good stuff like that inside of, inside of a thousand words. Yeah, it could be bullet pointed. And a lot of things that Eli, like, like you were talking about, I looked up the knife, um, the knife theory, and I shared it to our, our group chat here, um, this condensed version. And they have a good knife block, um, seven to 12 different things. Like, like you said, Craig, named person that your character uh, cares about, an enemy your character has, ongoing obligations. And Eli, these were all things that you asked for. Um, and I got to the point after 27 Please. pages. Yeah, I'm like, guys, we need to condense a little bit of this. I need stuff that, that works. You know, I don't mind having a location named. I don't mind having a few NPCs. But if you develop half of the world hemisphere where you're from, scale it back. I mean, come on. We have other characters, other players to think about. So, um, yeah, I like the knife theory. And not knowing what it was and knowing that it's where I've headed. It's where I've ended up. Eli, same thing for you. I mean, not knowing about it and still doing it. Um, what is it? Great minds end up thinking alike, right? When I when I first heard knife theory and you started talking, I thought you were going to say when a character when you, it's, it's important to pick up a bunch of knives and other equipment. I thought that was the direction it was going of just like buy random equipment, and I was going to be That's like, funny. yes, please do that. That is what I I love it when someone's like, oh yeah, I've got a five pound pickle. This can help. I us have in this scenario. additional I- questions. Uh, so, <laughs> um, like, okay, it bleeds for good moments, especially when you forget about them, and then you're like looking in your character sheet in a desperate moment, and you're like, "Did I mention I've been carrying around a ten foot ladder this whole time?" That's funny. That's funny. When uh, when you mentioned knives and random equipment, it, re- it reminded me of a uh, a real life thing that I just did earlier today, and I'm not sure why. I uh, I left a review on Amazon, which I rarely ever do by the way. And it was for a three-sided twisted Damascus knife. And I'm a machinist. So instantly the stupid thing looks like a really fancy drill bit. <laughs> seen this I le- thing. I've seen, I know the knife you're talking about. It's, it's like the corkscrew. Yeah. Okay, go on. You're not yeah. taking knife theory too literally now, <laughs> are you? <laughs> it just happens to be a coincidence that we're talking about this. The same day I reviewed a very fancy knife um, as a machinist who assumed it was a drill bit. So I talk about this in this review. I'm like, it's a horrible drill bit. I don't, I don't recommend it. I don't, would never buy it. It cannot put a hole in anything unless it's soft. <laughs> and for that, I would assume it's, a, it's definitely better for stabbing than drilling. It's more of a punch, as if I didn't know this was a knife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, waiting yeah. to hear if this review is uh, approved or not. And like I said, I don't know why. It's rolling I did it. Amazon it was, reviews? <laughs> I, you know what? Like I said, I never do this shit. And all of a sudden, one just hit me like, this would be funny. 
and I'm 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 hoping. Unsuitable for anything but very soft subjects. And yes. I, will, I will keep my eye out for you on some, you know, random repost. If it gets published, I'll send it to you guys. But I like yes. I hardly ever do this shit. Oh my god! I, every now and then, something hits you, and you think it's funny, and you hope the world does too. I'm, I'm hoping, guys. We didn't talk about monsters at all, did we? <laughs> no. Well, a little bit. A little bit. Um, we touched. We touched on it. Yeah. If we want to go back, I, I'd like to kind of explain one of the things that I've I've done before. Um, if you guys yeah. are up for that. Okay. What do you got? So I was running a game, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Stephen King's novel, The Mist, or the movie, but uh, the general premise is that things are shrouded in mist. Mist holds horrible obscenities, monstrosities, uh, alien creatures from different multiple, multiple uh, universes. Um, but the idea is that you cannot see because the mist is essentially all-consuming when it comes to your vision. So in the world that I was running, I called it the mist fell, and it was very similar. Um, vision was pretty much restricted to five to ten feet, regardless of what type of vision they had, what sort of lighting that they had. Um, and it was always dark, dreary, rainy mist. Um, cold, it clung to their bodies. It was absolutely devastating. And to create a monster by any means that was scary in this situation, because I was trying to go for a horror feel, um, would literally come in like a tentacle. And whatever I needed that tentacle to do would allow that attack. So whether it would be like um, one tentacle would be a monstrous small snake head or lion head that would allow for a bite attack or a scorpion tail that would allow for a poison sting attack. And mm -hmm. each one was essentially different. And I did that specifically to paint the idea of a alien-like monstrosity that size was just nearly uncomprehensible. Um, all of that was just made up on the fly. I just took individual attacks necessary to deliver a specific feel. And the intent of this combat was not to kill my players or have my players win by any means. It was just large animalistic creature passing through their space as it's all attacks of opportunity. Um, and again, to instill fear of the mist, the unknown, the uncomprehensible. And that's that's not something I do too frequently, but in the setting, it just made absolute sense. How did it land? What did your players? How did your players interact with it? Um, they were able to come because they moved faster than my imagined creatures' speed. They were able to find things that resembled legs, and they could at least attack and do damage, which only aggravated the monster. Um, but that their level and the amount of players action economy was on their side so i allowed them to make enough attacks to do enough damage that the monster would speed up and flee they felt a victor a victorious win in that scenario but they were still scared of further possibilities of more aggressive creatures that they couldn't see so uh it did its job and again all of it really made up on the fly um the problem is that realistically there is absolutely no monster so to speak there's no body there's no um, physicality to it it's literally a series of attacks described on tentacles so would, would they is there any possibility that they could have killed that creature 
I would have allowed it had combat um, moved a little farther. But as it stood for that particular encounter, uh, it wasn't designed to die. But um, again, if if they pressed the issue, yes, I would have allowed it. <clears throat> so your goal was to scare them. I mean, your goal was yeah. to communicate that this place is, is a terrifying, you know, unknown, unplumbable depth here. Um, mm -hmm. I can see some players getting really frustrated by that and saying, well, this is a monster. It's attacking us. We've always been able to interact with this in this kind of way. Um, so what other solutions did you, did you have any other, excuse me, did you have any other solutions in mind aside from chop at it until it, it goes away or dies that could have been a, a useful response? Running uh, away, yeah. um, some banishing ritual. What did you have in mind? Yeah, all of my players know that they can absolutely run away. And I've been playing with my group of Do players. Ever? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, Very uh, rarely, <laughs> but sometimes. Uh, they all know it's an option, especially because a lot of times they they know that boss fights, uh, essentially, they determine when they're going to happen, if they're going to pursue that story arc fast enough. But they don't shy away from that. They, they tend to feel prepared. It's okay. And when we look at something specifically like, um, I don't want to say boss, like mini boss battles, they had the opportunity to run away because I'm not going to hold punches. I'm not going to budge numbers. I'm not going to try to save them. Um, if it's going to be deadly, it's going to be deadly. And then we have things like story bosses, I'll say. Uh, those are generally things that are personally connected to certain players. And if I need those characters to last and they're outmatching my players, you know, the players will survive. Um, because I want something specific to happen. So my players tend to know all these circumstances and they choose how they feel like to react. This was completely new to them. So giving them the opportunity to attack because they're used to that, I allowed them to attack legs. Um, they know that they could spend more time to figure out other ways to defeat a monster. This one was a little different, particularly because there was no real visible aspect to it. They couldn't see it to identify it. They couldn't really get a good handle or grip on uh, a comprehension of size or what it was to kind of pick at it with a knowledge skill or anything like that. All they had to go on was, I see it, I can smash it. And I think with the way that one in particular ended, I looked at elemental spells like fire and mist generally don't get along. Fire comes out on top. So any sort of flame did way more damage. It really was more effective and that's what hastened the creatures passing through um in this in the retro retrospect of scope i would say that its hit points were massively outnumbering the amount of damage that they would have been able to do in a reasonable amount of time but how did how did you decide like when the creature fled was it kind of just going by the feel of the table and how people were like reacting to this because i it sounds like you were in like initiative order um or we were in initiative order and i did that specifically to keep it easy and prior to the game i said i'm gonna have its base movement at x and it should take approximately eight rounds to move all the way through um so i use eight as my base they tried to follow it the best they could so we went to 10 but after that, it was too obscured by the mist, and it continued in its direction. Um, so I don't wing everything here. It's just 
I when something's planned, I'm, I'll plan about how long it sticks around. Like I said, eight, we stretch to ten because they tried to follow. So, um, would you change but, anything uh, if you were going to run it again? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, what would you do? I would actually bring down the size. So, I think in terms of uh, like third edition and Pathfinder, we can go all the way up to Colossal now, um, which is bigger than Gargantuan. I think fifth edition capped at Gargantuan. Those um, medium, large, huge, Gargantuan, Colossal, and Pathfinder, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of fifth edition players are like, oh shit, there's something bigger. Yeah, there was. And <laughs> um, I would actually size it down to something that would be considerably more manageable for the players. Um, but the downside... Why was the that, size Why was the size the, uh, the relevant factor? Um. Because in my head, I'm visioning it's got legs. It's like essentially like a big spider-type creature, eight legs, okay. um, all different appendages spaced so far out that finding these things could have been uh, more difficult had I allowed it to be. Scaling that down removes some possible frustrations, but size-to-scale ratio also removes possible fear, deadliness, uh, unknown aspect to it. Um, so I might have only bumped it down one, maybe two, depending on uh, the flow of the game. So I think that's what I would do this time around. And then interesting, my like having heard it and kind of like picturing how you've described it ran, my tendency would actually be to make it even bigger. Yeah, like, make it so like it was just the legs moving independently across the map. That's what know, I was make, envisioning like, too. Yeah. Turn it less from like you know the more puzzle aspect in figuring. But I mean, probably still initiative rounds are probably important for that, um, just for running yeah. around and. If I mean with yeah. a with a spider, you could have eight different initiatives for it, so they can hear different booms as the steps land in the fog. Yeah, yeah, and I, that's where I started. And it just, I didn't fall flat. It got the point across. It did what I wanted it to do, but it wasn't fun to the degree I wanted it. It, it just missed the mark. So Sometimes you have to scrap an idea mid-session and yeah. just move through it. Yeah, and uh, I think we've all ended up having to do that. You got to roll with the punches on the fly. If it's not working, you got to adjust. Mm -hmm. Rec recognizing when it's time to throw an idea out, even if you're in the middle of it, is uh, a difficult skill to master, but you know if it's not playing, if the if your audience, if your your players are are not singing along, then you know you're there to have fun, like we said at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And again, I mean, looking at our time, one thing that we tried to wanted to mention was kind of how to end a session. Ah, uh, as as how to as end a podcast. Yeah, as as we're coming to wrap up, I mean. Let's let's shoot for something quick. I mean, that's the best way to do both at one time. You know, I like if I can revealing something that the players are chomping at the bit to go do. And then saying we'll roll initiative next time or we'll resolve that action when we pick up so that there's immediately something to get right back into the action as soon as we pick it up. We take notes on what was going to happen. We go from there because it's a great um, cue for memories of, oh, well, why are we going to do that? Oh, because we were about to do X, Y, and Z. Great, let's get started again. That's I, I aim for that whenever I can. like that. Eli, how about you? If you're in incredibly large battles, 
and your time's running short or you see people like aren't like aren't all engaging maybe some people have really stepped away and are kind of like oh those two people were falling fighting down that hall we're just hanging out you guys can finish it up and calling a session in the middle of that fight you know right as something changes or something dramatic happens or a really high moment then you can use that week to prep how to keep and wrap those especially if you know you're going to be still in combat you want to make a way that you can get them into the game yeah that way everyone has fun rob what do you got i generally wait for a small little bit of a lull towards the end of the night and say all right guys what we'll do is we'll wrap it up here and we'll pick it up next time and i think that's what we're gonna do for the podcast so guys Thanks for checking us out. I'm glad you were here for SideQuest. You can always find us online at epictablegames.com or on Facebook. Look forward to some of the changes we haven't announced yet, and they are coming. Thanks, guys. Adios. Bye-bye.